0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Sandy K Nutrition, Health and Lifestyle Queen, my 100th episode. Today with me, I have Ryan Smith. He is the co-founder of True Diagnostic, True Age Biological Age Test Kits. Now, I've done an episode on a different biological age test kit. This one is a little bit more detailed. So, In this interview, you're going to get all the goods. You're going to understand exactly how they calculate the information. It's all done through blood, by the way. And and how they come to different conclusions, including at what age are my telomere length? At what age is my immune system at? These are all really cool things. And why I love this so much, why do I love biological age test kits? Because you can make changes in your life to improve this, you guys. Yes, there are certain things that you can't erase, i.e. I was a smoker. And sometimes the stress that you've endured in your life, it's done a little bit of lasting damage. But guess what? Everything can be improved upon through diet and lifestyle and all sorts of amazing things. And Ryan and I are going to get into All of this in this podcast episode. And if you want your own biological age test kit, you can use the code SANDYK50 and you will get $50 off your very own. And I personally suggest that you do one of these every, what, six to 12 months after you've done some sort of a lifestyle change to see how that lifestyle change has impacted your biological age, and how much has actually improved. And you're going to hear some pretty surprising things in this interview. It is truly fun, and I really wanted it to be on my 100th episode because 100 centenarians associated with longevity and health span and all the good things. So my podcast has literally just hit two years, and I'm pretty proud of the fact that I have hit 36,000 downloads. This, to me, is pretty amazing. I'm proud of that because I started this podcast literally from nothing. I started this podcast when I initially opened my practice. And I graduated three years ago, started the podcast one year in after I graduated. And, you know, for me, my primary goal in life is to have this megaphone. I want to reach as many people as I can on this planet with things that can actually improve your health, your wellness. And these are not mainstream things. I don't often talk about mainstream things because, yeah, of course, we need mainstream medicine and things like that. That's very, very critical. But wellness and health is about so much more. And this is why I do what I do. Now, I am still open for sponsors. I've had some amazing sponsors so far this year, and I'm really, really fortunate to have had them, and I'm grateful. If you do want to still sponsor my show, feel free to send me an email, sandy at sandyknutrition.ca, I'm very active on Instagram, at Sandy K Nutrition, on Twitter, kind of, Facebook, yes, I'm pretty active there, Sandy K Nutrition. If you want to be part of my private women-only Facebook group, and this is women generally over 40, find me at Sandy K Nutrition Health and Lifestyle Queen, and you have to answer a few moderating questions to be in because I want to make sure it's a safe space. I'm way more active there than I was in the previous couple of years. And it is a small intimate group for now. And there's a lot of cool things that are going to be happening. I'm also going to be speaking at the biohacking women's conference at the end of March. I would love for you to just touch base with me, see how you can get a ticket and um, I think you're going to really see a lot of value because there's definitely a lot of biohacking out there. But this is specific for women. And this is why I'm so passionate about this. It is a virtual conference, so it'll be pretty easy for you to attend. So send me a message if you're interested, either through Instagram or through any other means. Send me an email, sandy at sandyknutrition.ca. Also, please, I welcome any reviews. Okay, I'm not going to say any. I welcome positive reviews. (laughs) I do my best not to leave negative feedback on any platform. That's my way of being. I don't believe that leaving something negative that will be there forever is really a great thing. I think it's not great karma. So, you know, even still, you know, you can't be happy about everything all the time, but I prefer having a conversation with somebody if I have a critique as opposed to leaving a review that's negative. So that's why I'm going to say, leave me a five star review with a few kind words because it helps my show to be found. Podcasting is so huge these days and lots of celebrities are in podcasting and, you know, The little guy, like me, gets lost in the shuffle sometimes. So if you review my show, it really helps me to give back, to continue to get great guests, and it just gives me a little bit more ability to be found. So with that, I am going to cut on through to the interview with Ryan Smith of True Diagnostics True Age Biological Age Test Kits. Hope you enjoy. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Sandy K Nutrition, Health and Lifestyle Queen. Today with me, I have a special guest. His name is Brian Smith, and he's a co-founder of True Diagnostic. You might have heard me talk about this on Instagram the last couple of weeks, but True Diagnostic is a commercial testing system that tests your biological age as opposed to your chronological age. It was founded in March 2020, And the first commercial testing began in July that year. Since then, the company has launched many ongoing clinical trials, looking at a variety of interventions. They're also looking at how COVID-19 affects health metrics and longevity. So without further ado, let me introduce you to Ryan Smith. Hi, Ryan.
1: Hey, Sandy. Thanks so much for having me.
0: I'm so happy to have you here. I am really excited because, you know, first, I guess the best thing is, is I'm going to first ask how you got into this. I have to ask you this because I've, I've talked to you for a bit now and you're extremely passionate about what you do. And I love that because I'm the same, as you can see, I'm, I'm always passionate to talk about wellness. So tell me how you got started.
1: Yeah, it's been a, a definitely a long journey. Um, you know, my background's in biochemistry uh, undergrad and then went to medical school um, at the University of Kentucky. But I sort of did all the clinical training for uh, for medical school, got to uh, pass my USMLE Step 1 boards, and then really got to the clinical portion in year 3 and 4. And I uh, just absolutely hated it. I couldn't imagine doing it uh, for the rest of my life. It was uh, uh, definitely not something that sort of captured, uh, I think, my uh, my full passion. Um, and so made a probably very stupid financial decision, but uh, ended up creating a compounding pharmacy uh, was shortly after I left medical school uh, called Tailor-Made Compounding. And uh, that compounding pharmacy was really specialized in treating this sort of integrative preventative medicine space, really focused with a lot of cash pay integrated medicine providers um, who had, I, I think, a much more preventative approach to medicine. And I think that really resonated with me. And Some of the products we used there were really innovative products, um, particularly a lot of the peptides that you might have already talked about uh, over the course of a a couple other podcasts. But that's really what we specialized in. And and we sort of hit a niche. We were, uh, you know, started in 2016, and by 2019, we were the fourth fastest growing company uh, in healthcare in the world. We were just had massive expansion. And uh, throughout this entire process, one of the things that always really interested me was objective data about how a lot of these new and innovative molecules were really helping people in the long run. How were they affecting lifespan, how are they affecting health span? And so um, whenever this metric of epigenetic uh, age detection uh, sort of started to, to really come about, I got very, very interested and really wanted me to get involved, uh, because the idea here is that we can quantify the single biggest risk factor for all chronic disease and death, which is aging. Um, and so that was really really exciting. So we exited the pharmacy in 2020 and really uh, created this company uh, from the ground up at True Diagnostic.
0: Beautiful, I love it. You know, it's it's interesting because you you mentioned peptides and 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 aging, and you're a young guy. Like, why so passionate about aging?
1: <laughs> you know, I, I think that it's the preventative nature. I think um, you know, I think that. The, one of the hardest things about the clinical space to me is treat, trying to treat people who are already pretty ill or have already had a lot of damage in their system it, it's always much easier to prevent than to treat um, and although I think that, uh, that the two are obviously very very interconnected I think that the idea is that that we can make a major impact if we really try and try to treat aging as a disease. Um, I always tell the statistic on a lot of my podcasts that if everyone in the world were to be seven years younger biologically than chronologically, we would cut disease in half. Fifty percent of people would no longer be sick. And that is, I would say, a level of population level impact that that I think is very, very needed. And if everyone starts paying attention to age as a primary disease outcome, I think we'll see a lot of other benefits.
0: Absolutely. So, quick quick description of the difference between biological age and chronological age just so that everybody has that clear
1: yeah so so chronological age is easy it's the one that you're most familiar with right it is the the number of candles on your birthday cake you know what's sort of on your uh, uh, on on your driver's license that one is very easy to define but that has always been a little bit of a problem because it is not the most informative health status i think that most people can relate to this they probably know people in their 80s who or are doing everything that they they want to do or behaving like a 60 year old and then vice versa they might know people in their 50s who look to be in really poor health can't do a lot of the things that that people their same age might do and so there's this difference between ages and how people perform or it's called phenotypic variation and there's a lot of that and it really makes this idea of chronological age a little bit less effective even chronological age is still the biggest risk factor for most chronic Diseases. However, if we start to measure this in different ways to sort of capture how well your your body or your biology is aging instead of just a year, we can get even more specific about those risk factors. And so, biological age has been something that has uh, you know gone on uh, from from a long time, even since the nineteen twenties. They've been trying to find ways to detect biological age by doing things like the chronological age, you know, plus one year for every pack a day you smoke. Uh, really crude measurements, um, and and. Uh, More recently, though, with the advent of this epigenetic age testing, it's gotten very, very precise um, and very, very predictive of health outcomes. And so this has represented a really new development in how we are able to quantify the age of your body or how well you're progressing throughout life.
0: Yeah, I I mean, I was I think I mentioned that to you. I remember back. I don't know how many years ago, Dr. Oz had a quiz. That you would go and you would do that on his website just to find out how well you're aging, which is, listen, it's, it's not that accurate. You can maybe get some idea, and it's more dependent on your lifestyle, right? Like, are you a smoker? Are you a heavy drinker, right? Yeah. So this is different. So maybe, you know, first, I think it's really important for you to explain to the audience, what is epigenetics? Okay. Yeah.
1: So, so this is uh, definitely something that if this is your first time hearing about it, it will certainly not be your last. And, and so I hope people can get excited about this topic, as really right now, epigenetics is where genetics was 30 years ago. We're about to see an explosive growth in this area that will impact every area of medicine. But, but simply put, epigenetics is, is very similar to genetics. With genetics, we obviously, if we took any cell in your body, we would get the same DNA, right? Those are the, the instructions uh, sort of on how your body behaves. Um, And and epigenetics is slightly different because epigenetics are about the expression of those instructions. So essentially what genes are turned on or turned off. And that can be really informative because instead of just telling us what could happen, it actually tells us what is happening, what genes are actually turned on, what's actually happening in your cells. And it can be a little bit more complicated than genetics, too, because these things are changeable. And and that can sometimes be difficult, but at the same time, it gives us a path to have treatments, to change some of our behaviors and markers and and change gene expression, to turn certain things on and certain things off. And, And so what we're measuring is particularly one of the ways that we regulate those on or off switches. Uh, particularly, we're looking at those off markers, what generally would be like turning off your, uh, you know, sort of a light switch, which is epigenetic methylation. This is just a small chemical tag that's added to the DNA, which prevents it from being transcribed into RNA. And so that's really the first step in how your genes uh, really go from genetic information to, you know, carrying out the instructions that your body needs to do. And so we're really just trying to read the genome for what is turned on or turned off and how those different off- on-switches affect biology.
0: Okay, so when you guys are doing that, are you looking very specifically at the genes that are related to aging, or just everything?
1: Yeah, yeah so, so we're, we're looking at a very broad set of genes. We're looking at over 900,000 locations in your genome. And really, in each of those locations, what we're getting is a percentage of methylation, saying out of all the copies of your DNA that we're testing, What is the percentage which is methylated at that individual location? Um, And originally, we don't really know what genes are the best associated with Uh aging. I think we definitely now have some aging-associated genes. But one of the ways that we found those are by looking at the differences, at least genetically and epigenetically, between people who age poorly and people who age very, very well, like centenarians who live over 100. And so what we're able to do is to sort of pick out different types of expression that correlate to different ages. And, and methylation in particular is incredibly, incredibly sensitive in this regard. The first ever methylation age algorithm came out in 2013. So again, it's still relatively new, not even a decade old. Um, and almost immediately, it started to be applied to things that were not health-related, but still very, very interesting. For instance, using it at crime scenes to tell how old someone was if they left yes. their DNA there, uh, forensically. Yeah. And then additionally, even dating refugees to see if they were adults or minors. And the reason that it started to be used in in, in practices way is because of its accuracy. It is incredibly, incredibly accurate um, at at being able to tell someone's chronological age. And soon this was changed to really be able to detect someone's biological age. And that's really where it started to be very relevant to health and disease.
0: Wow. I find that really fascinating. So your your database, where do you get your data to be able to compare? I know that you're, you're studying, obviously you've studied centenarians, but how do you get your numbers to compare it to? Cause I know where my percent, like where I sit in the percentile. So where does that come from?
1: Yeah. So the majority of people that are doing our testing are medical providers. So, uh, you know, uh, MDs or nurse practitioners or, or people who have, their own clinics and are t- doing this type of testing on, uh, I, I would say, their, their patient base. And so uh, that really helps us build this database. Mm-hmm. That the original algorithms have been used via uh, really large cohorts in, in publicly available trials, Things, uh, studies you might be familiar with, like uh, the Enchianti study or the Framington Heart study, some of these yeah. really big population-level studies where they're able to get a good idea of the population. You know, we, we definitely use some of that data in some of our analyses, uh, but we also have a really good basis of, of from these other sort of patients that we have as well. And, uh, and a good mixture of both is, is important, right? As much diversity as we can get really helps us start to capture all of these different aging phenotypes or whatever variables might be associated with it. Um, and so originally it started with those really big cohorts, which have samples banked for many, many years. Um, and then now we've started to develop our own cohorts and even longitudinal cohorts that we've been tracking uh, for, for quite a while and so all of these pieces of information go into a database which then we use computer learning and artificial intelligence to really create new and better algorithms and so um, I'm sure we'll go into a lot of that you know that now this testing and, and for anyone who's, who's, who's interested in this it goes way beyond aging even now um, there's already tests on the market to diagnose over 50 types of cancers before any other method um, you know there are ways to tell how much you, you've smoked across your lifetime you know how much you're currently drinking and this is uh, I would say a whole level of diagnostics, which is why I say it will change almost every area of medicine. But for us, our focus is definitively in quantifying age and finding the things which best reverse that aging process.
0: Yeah, you can't lie on this test, that's for sure. I mean, (laughs) you might as well be honest, because it's all going to come through, right? Um, So tell me, so we'll get into what mine ended up being with your test. And then maybe we'll talk. But I want to know what what do you take? So I'm going to go and I'm going to give blood, right? It's a blood test, blood spot. Then you take my information and my information is obviously stored very safely, right? Absolutely. And, yeah. um, and then what happens? What happens next?
1: Yeah, so, so whenever we take your blood, the first thing that we would do is to isolate the DNA, right? That's what we're looking at is we're trying to get those chemical tags on the DNA. And so we, once we look at that, we run it through an imaging uh, sort of uh, really high-tech imaging platform, which sort of gives us a relative percentage at each of those locations that I mentioned. So, so for the 900,000 spots that we're looking at, we're getting really 900,000 percentages. Um, and, and by itself, those percentages are not very helpful. Uh, what we really need to be able to use those percentages are algorithms. Uh, so ways that we can interpret that data, take it from sheer numbers to a clinical output. Um, say your, your risk of cardiovascular disease, or in this case, your biological age. And so those algorithms are incredibly important, and, and they're growing as our data grows. They're becoming more and more precise and more and more accurate. Um, and, and so... What, that's what we do is we essentially take that data, those percentages we get from from essentially your data, and then we run it through these algorithms. And so uh, the output of those is essentially that biological age number. Um, and so those algorithms are, are, are created and validated in public literature, and that's one thing I would recommend everyone, uh, if you're doing any type of epigenetic or even biological age calculation from any other method, it's very important to look at has it been published, because uh, otherwise... Otherwise, you, you're just sort of taking our word for it. But, but uh, with published data, you can really compare how pretty these things of certain diseases are. And that's really where the value is, is by saying, by reversing this metric, we can then improve your health phenotype, not just how long you're going to live, but also how you're going to look and feel as well.
0: Right. And then you end up getting, once you get, get your results, you end up getting a few different reports, right? You get your true age Absolutely. report. You get your immune report, like they're kind of separate. Maybe get into that part of it. I hope you guys are really enjoying this episode as much as I enjoy bringing it to you. But I have to talk to you a little bit about a product that I totally love. And this product is called WaveBlock. Did you know that wireless earbuds, cell phones, and many other Bluetooth products function by emitting radiation? Well, if you've been listening to me and following me for a while, you know that they do. Did you know that this radiation is even more harmful for children than adults? In fact, in 2019, more than 250 scientists signed a petition asking the International Public Health Organization to create stronger guidelines and warnings on the use of wireless and Bluetooth electronics. Scientists have strong evidence to believe that EMF radiation causes several different health problems. WaveBlock products are perfect for you if you always have your phone in your hand, or at your head, or if you're using those AirPods to listen to podcasters like myself for many hours a day. Here at WaveBlock, they choose not to turn away from the latest and greatest technology. Hey, are you really going to tell your teenager that they can't use their AirPods? Or how about their phone? Right. I'm sure you know exactly my pain. So at WaveBlock, they dedicated themselves to hours of research, engineering, and testing to create a safer way to use your favorite electronic products. WaveLock stickers, which have hundreds of five star reviews are made to easily attach to cell phones and wireless earbuds so that you can enjoy your favorite gadgets with lowered risk by significantly reducing your exposure to radiation. How? The stickers are lab-proven to deflect EMF waves away from the brain. You can watch a video about how WaveBlock stickers work at waveblock.com. Get 20% off today when you use code SANDYK20 at waveblock.com. Waveblock, products that protect you, designed in Los Angeles, California. Now remember, SANDYK20 will give you 20% off. And now, back to the podcast.
1: Yeah, so, so, uh, you know, the amount of data that we can generate is, is massive. There are really 26 million locations we can actually look at per cell and every cell is different and your body has, you know, billions of cells. And so, this can, can be a pretty complicated process. But what people are doing now is, is uh, you know, I always liken it to sort of creating the, ros- you know, the Rosetta Stone of, of uh, epigenetic methylation interpretation, right? We have now this language, which we're starting to discover and quantify, but we have no idea how to interpret it. And that's really what we're trying to create is this Rosetta Stone, which will then tell us how to interpret it. And so there are multiple algorithms that we can create and train. You know, if we wanted to predict, you know, uh, what type of exercise you're doing on a regular basis, we could probably create an algorithm if we got your methylation data. And then we ask, you know, thousands of people what type of exercise they're doing. We could get really, really specific about that predictive model. Um, you know, and, and we could do that for a lot of different things. Everything from, yeah, as I mentioned, cardiovascular disease to mental processing uh, to maybe even how likely you are to lose your hair. Right. I mean, there, there are so many different yes. things that you can do if you can combine the data. And so the things that, that we currently output are, are algorithms, which have, have are, are still very, very new, but can tell us about different pieces of, of information about our process. One of those is obviously, you know, how well your immune system is aging. I think this is probably something that everyone relates to with COVID, uh, because, you know, it's the reason that, that older individuals get the vaccine first is as our immune systems age, they tend to get and function. And so that's obviously one of the things that we want to quantify. And so one of our reports actually tells you how your immune system is aging and, and what percentage of each type of immune cell you have in your body. And so that's one very important report. Another one that we really like to look, to look at is one that some other of your listeners might be familiar with in telomere length. Um, you know, really prior to these epigenetic methylation clocks, telomere length was one of the sort of gold standards for how well your body is aging. Um, and, and so without going too much into telomeres, uh, we're able to report out how long your telomeres are. Uh, we're also even able to tell you not your overall biological age, but right at this moment, what is your speedometer of aging? So this is probably my favorite of all the algorithms. Oh, cool. That's by far the most predictive. Yeah, I don't know if you saw your results. I, that, didn't, uh,
0: I didn't. I didn't. I didn't perfect. see that part. Oh. or Or my telomere length. <laughs> I do know a couple of things. But this is so, like, you guys who are listening – this is such a great tool to go. Okay, I gotta focus a little more in this area because it's weaker than I want it to be. Right? So yeah, tell me, talk to me, Ryan. I
1: love it. it. <laughs> totally. Yeah. No. So 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 those are some of our aging reports, and 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 you know for the rate of aging, the this one is one of my favorites, and and uh, I'll even give you maybe some images that you can you know uh, put up on on. You know, Instagram or anyone listening to this podcast, but this rate of aging is one that's my favorite because it tells you instantaneously how your behaviors are doing. It's also so precise that you can actually measure this relatively frequently to get a good idea of what works for you. You know, you and I both might take a medication or a supplement and do the test, and then have my rate of aging might go up and yours might go down. But what it tells us is individually how our biologies are really affected by those interventions. So we can actually see what's working for us, Um, and this one is incredibly, incredibly predictive. It is uh, predictive of how well your face will age. Um, it, it's predictive of, of your IQ and mental processing speeds. It's predictive of, uh, you know, how your grip strength and how well you can balance and move. Um, and and I'll send you some really great pictures where uh, we've actually followed the same cohort. From the time they were three years of age, starting in 1975, now to when they're over 46 years of age uh, in our most recent study, and and what we've been able to do is to uh, really link this rate of aging to all of those phenotypes. And I mention all of those because uh, a lot of times people think of longevity as just how long you'll live, um, and that's not the, what we're sort of talking about here. We're also talking about quality of life, yes. right? uh, how you move, how you, uh, you know, how, how well you can think, even at your aesthetics, how where your face looks. It can all be tied to this rate of aging. And so, um, you know, even if you're slightly above one in this rate of aging, so one biological year per year in your aging rate. Um, if you're over that, you would increase your risk of death over the next seven years by 56%, and you'd increase your risk of chronic disease over the next seven years by 54%. So keeping that, that rate below one is incredibly valuable for your health, and not just your health, but all of those other things that we talk about, which make life better to live. And so um, for you, uh, Sandy, you definitely beat that one mark. Uh, so, so that is a, a really good score for you.
0: Okay, that blows my mind. I did not know that that one year above your chronological age has a factor of yeah. what did you say 56%? Yeah.
1: So just yeah, just to be clear on this. This is for that rate of aging algorithm. So if you are aging oh. at a rate of faster than one biological year per year, you would increase your risk of uh, chronic disease by 54% over the next seven years. So you'd be 54% more likely to develop something like cardiovascular disease or diabetes or, or Parkinson's or Alzheimer's. Um, and in addition to that, it, you would be 56% more likely to die over those next seven years than people who have that rate of aging below one. And so um, so that is a huge threshold. We try and keep people aging slower than one biological year per year. So, are you basically aging at a, uh, a rate that is slower than, you know, your chronological age. Um, and, and that's really what we would want to see. And so, uh, and this is one of those things that, that is a little bit like compounded interest, uh, you know, where the, the lower that you can keep that metric for a longer period of time, the better, because, uh, you know, if you start accelerating your aging even early in life, it can, Predispose you to even faster aging throughout the rest of life, like compounded interest. And one of my favorite things about this study, as well, is that even the aging rates at age three were predictive of outcomes at age forty-five. Which means that uh, you know we're we're aging throughout our entire life. A lot of people think of aging as something that just happens in you know our forties, fifties, or sixties. That's not the case. We start aging immediately. Mm -hmm. Um, And as we start to really detect what some of those things are, we can make some major impacts. One other good example here for this algorithm is uh, we know that children who are exposed to adverse childhood experiences or or even born in low socioeconomic statuses are are much higher risk to have a faster rate of aging earlier in life. Um, and, And so, for instance, even from a societal standpoint, we know that there are probably some behaviors and things that we should all change to have a better aging population.
0: Yeah. Wow. Like, I mean, I interviewed uh, Phil Mikens. I don't know if you know him. He's a pharmacologist. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I interviewed him three times last year. We've got another one set up for this year to come. But, you know, him and I were talking about just what you said. And he was saying, basically, once a child reaches puberty, the onset of aging really begins then. I'm like, crap. So... You know, you're looking at a 13-year-old who's starting to, it, it makes you look at aging in a very different way. So um, yeah. I find all of this fascinating, and I think most people are really catching on that this is important. So I guess we can reveal, because I have given my permission to reveal what my biological age was in this test. And it was 51.7, and this is at the age of 52 when I did the test. So I am going to bring in a few things that I'm doing. And you can maybe tell me, and then, wait, and then the immune side, well, we'll get into that secondary, I guess, the immune age, right? But maybe you can tell me if there's any of these factors that I'm doing that could possibly help this. So I've been on peptide bioregulators for seven months since that test. I did finish my eighth month, but it was after I did this test. And the peptide bioregulators that I'm taking are really generally just to actually bring back the biological reserve of organ systems. So it's not really, I'm not injecting synthetics. I'm not doing those types of peptides. They are specifically peptide bioregulators, just for under the hood work, I like to say. So there's that. I'm also taking NAD, Nushido. It's there's there's all different types of NAD supplements. There's precursors. I'm taking Nushito's. It's very. It works differently than the precursors. And then I'm also taking Spermidine. And these are all. I guess you could say, well, I also take resveratrol. There's a few of these supplements that are really important to aging better. So what are your thoughts on that? Because last year when I did the test, I was, and it wasn't your test. So I have to make that clear. And you can't, it's not comparing apples to apples because it's not the same test. However, I was older by about seven months or so. And now I'm younger. Yeah. Talk to me now.
1: Yeah. Well, definitely. I think it's important to say you have to compare apples to yes. apples because the algorithm definitely makes sense. But but for that being said, there—that that is the great thing about epigenetics is because everything that you're doing in your life, from the amount of sleep, the amount of stress, to what you're eating – all of these things impact your epigenetic profiles. And so so the good news is that change is available, and and now we just have to find out the things that work to change. Um, And and unfortunately, uh, that is still early in progress. Really the first ever trial, which looked at a baseline measurement a treatment and then an outcome, was published in September of 2019. Uh, you know, maybe it's right to the fall of 2019, um, and that was the first ever proof of concept study. And in that study, it was really exciting because they were able to reverse epigenetic age over two years, over 1.5 years worth of time. And mm-hmm. they were using products like metformin, growth hormone, and DHEA. Um, you know, more I would say uh, prescriptive hormones, uh, but. Since that time, there have been around, around eight or to ten studies, depending on how you classify it, which which also are interventional studies. And so, unfortunately, a lot of those data points, uh, I would say, for the, for the cabins and peptide bioregulators, we don't have a lot of data on those. Um, and particularly, one of the other, I would say, problems, one of the things we really would love to do is... To quantify what those peptide sequences are, because that would also help us yeah. decide, you know, sort of what's working and what's not. But but for NAD, uh, you know, especially popularized by Dr. David Sinclair in his book Lifespan, um, you know, NAD has been a, a really, uh, I would say, targeted investigation for aging. Um, the idea is that the NAD might activate some of these genes called sirtuins, which might have some anti-aging effects. Um, and so, uh, and the same with resveratrol, actually, is another sirtuin activator, which uh, you know has had a lot of publicity uh, from uh, things like the French paradox, uh, you know, where they might be drinking wine or or things which make them healthier than than you know generally Americans. And so, uh, with that being said, we we do actually have some relatively good data sets on NAD. Um, we're starting to see you know studies being uh, created with. Precursors like NMN or nicotinamide riboside, which would be a little bit more like that new Cheetos supplement that, that you're mentioning. Um, and we are seeing a small, very, very small positive benefit with any of those NAD precursors. Um, and, and so that definitely looks to be promising, although a lot of more work needs to go in there um, to, to sort of tell us. We also generally see that polyphenols like resveratrol, like terosyl bean, um, those those types of things you find in wine or grapes or uh, are, are actually beneficial as well, at least very, very mild. And so we're starting to see that there are a lot of behaviors, things like the Mediterranean diet, things like vitamin D consumption um, that that definitely move this metric. Um, And and so we're now starting to have really, really, uh, I would say, good general recommendations for everyone. But still, the majority of what we know comes from epidemiological trials, looking at really, really big, large data sets and sort of saying, you know, out of all all of these these, 10,000 people that we look at, what what what, what are the best scores have in common and what are the worst scores have in common? And from there, we're able to say things like how stress or sleep impact or, you know, how socioeconomic status or education or or BMI uh, or, you know, those different body fat percentage metrics. And so uh, we're starting to really connect all of these things to aging. And if there's one big takeaway right now, at least, it's that most of the things you would imagine. Are correlated to aging are pretty intuitive. Uh, you know, it's the things that you would generally recommend, right? Reducing stress, eating healthier diets with less processed food, avoiding pollution, the other exposures. Those things all make a lot of sense. But what we're really trying to hope for is for the grand slam, right? The, the, the intervention which will have multi year age reductions. And, um, and, and we're seeing a lot of interest there, even really very recently. About two weeks ago, they announced the creation of funding of of Altos Labs, uh, which is backed by Jeff Bezos and Yuri Milner. It's one of the largest startups of all time. They they, uh, were sort of uh, given over $3 billion of funding and have attracted some of the best researchers in this field. Um, And so they're working on now uh, methods to uh, really regenerate these clocks back to zero. Um, And they've already had some really good success, particularly even Dr. Sinclair's lab at Harvard was able to regenerate vision. Um, in mice by resetting their epigenetic age clocks to zero. Um, So they were blind, and now they can see again by using some of these factors, which really reset the exact measure that we're measuring.
0: On what level do other peptides that you're familiar with work when it relates to biological age tests like this?
1: Yeah, there are so many mechanisms of action uh, for all of these peptides, and the way I like to sort of talk about peptides is that these are your body's natural signalers. Yeah. Um, and so there are there are so many of these things in your body that there's really a, a peptide for for every different pathway. Um, and so so peptides as a class are so diverse, it, it can be difficult to answer that, but some of the peptides that we see making a major impact um, are things like immune stimulators, which are things that reduce inflammation. One of my favorite peptides, which is, again, not, not FDA approved yet, but in development, is a product that works to increase uh, mitochondrial's uh, sort of function, where we're improving our mitochondria, improving the energy production, we're reducing those reactive oxygen species, which might cause damage. Um, and, and you know, it, it's the one that I, I love the most is called SS31, um, it is a, uh, it's a product which is Uh, This is not hyperbole. This is actually a published uh, stat. But one injection is the sort of the energy ATP equivalent of six months of daily endurance training exercise. It is an amazing product. Um, And and so there are definitely multiple mechanisms of action that we can utilize. And and I think that as we start to – the problem for for aging has been we've never had a good way to – look at how all these interventions are affecting this objectively. If we really wanted to, a lot of times we have to wait a really long time to see how someone, how long someone lives or what types of diseases they develop. But right now, what this type of tool, this biological aging algorithms that we use, give a tool to really evaluate that in real time. So we can do three-month studies, six-month studies, and, and really look at how certain interventions are affecting all of these markers, which we know are correlated objectively to every type of disease. Um, you know, and, and 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 happy to go in there a little bit more, but, you know, whenever we were talking about the rate of aging, we talked about the 56-54% increase of risk. Um, to give you some other examples, for every one year that you're older, biologically than chronologically, uh, so, yeah, for me, you know, I'm, I'm 31 uh, one right now, and so, if I were 32, I would increase my risk of cancer by 6% over the next three years, and I'd increase my risk of dying of cancer Seventeen percent over the next five years, and so what you can start to see is that, that this aging rate is connected to almost every disease, cancer, cardiovascular, any of these chronic diseases, and we can objectively tie risk levels to our aging rate. And that's really what we can do now is is start to take in all of these different therapies and have objective ways on which one is working best and which one might work best for us individually.
0: Right. So I'm definitely going to have to retake this uh, biological age test. Like, what do you recommend? in terms of, okay, oh, we have to talk about immune. Don't let me forget that. <laughs> but yeah, what definitely. do you recommend? How often should someone take one of these tests?
1: So we don't recommend taking it more than once every six months. Okay. Um, and that, that will change. The reason for that level of, I would say, um, testing is due to the sensitivity and specificity of the test. We want to make sure that the change that you're seeing is very clearly aging change and not just noise as a result of how well we can measure it. Um, And and so the the first algorithms that were ever created had a pretty large margin of error. They were up to, you know, 2.9 years off, uh, which, again, if you're taking this within every six months, having a margin of error of 2.9 years might not tell you how you're actually aging. Um, And and so now these things have been perfected to be uh, significantly more accurate, but we would still recommend six months to make sure that the change you're seeing is not just, I would say, noise from our tests, but is actually real aging Um, and and that you can actually use that information to be actionable. Um, And so six months is generally our, our shortest timeline. There are certain algorithms where we might recommend more often. For instance, like that rate of aging algorithm, which is very, very precise. You might be able to take every 12 weeks, for instance.
0: And what someone can do, we talked about that, we just kind of touched on it, control your stress, eat whole real foods, Mediterranean diet, exercise, all of that. But what I find interesting, when we talked a little bit earlier offline, is that you indicated that these tests can really tell a lot, like, you can actually tell almost how many packs a day I smoked back
1: then? Yeah. How, Ryan, like yeah. you
0: cannot That's lie, crazy. people, on this test, because <laughs> there's a questionnaire that you do fill out, correct, and um, lifestyle yeah. habits, that sort of thing. So, you know, I was I'm very transparent about the fact that I smoked for 20 years, and you can actually see that. Will that have an impact on my biological age now, even though I quit 14 years ago?
1: Certainly, absolutely. You know, um, uh, in particular, smoking is a major uh, impact on these epigenetic age clocks. In particular, one of the best clocks is, is a clock called GrimAge, uh, which is actually a death predictor clock. And one of the biggest variables in that is smoking history. And, and in fact, that particular algorithm, uh, it, its estimation of smoking pack years is actually a better estimator of mortality than even self derived packing smoke here. So even if we were to ask you versus if we were to take this measurement, this measurement is better at predicting mortality than even, you know, an individual's response. And so, um, so the answer is yes. We, and some of that damage that, that sort of happens through smoking is sometimes irreversible reversible in some of those cells. And so uh, one of the things we're able to do is tell you if you're a current, never or former smoker, because of some of those methylation profiles, we can look at certain just uh, locations and say, due to your percentage of methylation, we would say that you are probably a former smoker um, rather than a uh, current or never. And so, um, and, and, and so we're still working on building out a lot of those functionalities, but I think it goes to tell you the, the, the sort of the breadth and width of epigenetic diagnostics beyond just age, right? We we have even reports now that, that you might have seen, Sandy, which tell you, are you likely to lose weight with caloric restriction? Or are, you know, are, We have some people who are very, very likely. Other people who have a really difficult time just reducing calories and losing weight. And so we can actually now predict that. We can predict if you're likely to have diabetes risk, if you're likely to become obese. We can tell you how much you're drinking at the moment. Are you a moderate, mild, or heavy drinker? Um, and, and all these things are independent, I should say, diagnostics from our age diagnostics. But what helps is now getting all of these different factors, we can we can all control for those. So we can actually look at, you know, centenarians who have, have drank versus those who have not drank and, and, and find out more insights where we're controlling for all of those behavioral factors. And so uh, this type of testing can really be used to, to predict just about anything.
0: Yeah, because uh, I mean, I, I, I was indicating on that, the questionnaire that I had to fill out. It was, you know, I don't drink unless I'm in a social situation. And, you know, if I'm if I'm at a party or whatever, going to Nashville, like we were talking about, then, yeah, I'm going to have a few drinks. And it was saying it's actually better for me and everyone who's listening. It doesn't mean you go and drink a bottle of wine every day. But it's saying to me that it could be more beneficial for me to have an occasional glass of wine, red wine. Right. Um, versus going and drinking a few drinks socially.
1: Huh. De- definitely. And the data here is still a little bit mixed, but there are, definitely, in the, in, in, especially in the early days, we've seen that, that one to two drinks of beer or wine per week is generally better for aging than no drinks at all. Um, and that's really thought to the fact that there are some some chemicals uh, in in some of those uh, per- particularly fermented alcohols which can reduce inflammation and uh, inflammation is obviously something we would prefer not to have. and so um, so, so yeah, so the data does point the moderation particularly in, in drinking looking to be maybe somewhat positive. Uh, but in addition to that, we're finding moderation in a lot of things to be critically important yes. you know if you were to look at just yeah, if you were to look at our Olympic or professional athletes who have taken this test, uh, you often might see accelerated ages. And you would think that due to their level of activity, that they might be, uh, you know, particularly protected. But sometimes the amount of stress, the reactive oxygen species that they're creating, um, you know, might actually hurt their aging process. So some exercise is good, but maybe not too much. And so we're starting to see these sort of uh, curves where maybe, you know, a little of something might be protective, but a lot of it might actually be detrimental. And so uh, now we're trying to establish what those thresholds are, right, for each individual. What is the, you know, the, the most optimal amount of, of red wine or, or uh, you know, what is the most optimal amount of exercise and what type? And, and now, again, that we have a way to measure it, we're starting to get really precise uh, information back. You
0: know, I'm not going to say that I'm right about everything because I certainly stand to be corrected many, many times over. But the one thing that has been really consistent in my practice over the last three years is moderation. And I've always said that. And I love to hear data like this because it supports just my own theory. I'm like, yeah, have a few drinks or, you know, yeah, exercise. But, you know, I've, I've seen it before. People who are these marathon runners and crazy joggers who are out there all the time have so much oxidative stress and damage on their bodies, right? Because that's not For moderation, sure. you know. And and uh, yeah, I, I I work out with a personal trainer. I do heavy lifting, but I only do it twice a week, you know. And I know yeah. where my limits are, and I think that that's where everything is going to change because what your limit is, is gonna be different than mine, right? And finding that moderation and balance for you is gonna be really important, just in overall wellness, right?
1: Definitely, yeah, definitely. And you know, I think that you know, for, for us to be able to find out the answers of, of what should we be doing, what what works best for me, we really need data, right? Yeah. And, and that's really what we're trying to create here is is really for the first time ever, we're able to look at these data sets Uh, in ways we haven't, you know, by using computer learning and artificial intelligence, we're in, you know, these these types of computer programs are able to draw insights that we just couldn't get if we just looked at it ourselves. And so this new data landscape is is very important for health. We're starting to answer those questions very definitively of hey, what are these good behaviors? What are the good behaviors? You know, then the how do my behaviors differ from those and, and, and what should I be doing on a personalized basis? And so we're starting to sort of answer those questions, but it all starts with really good data generation. And, and this platform of epigenetic methylation is really good for that because it is so expansive. Um, and in addition, it changes to the things that you're doing on a daily basis. And so it gives us more information about what's working, what's not, and then how to, uh, to change some of those factors whenever we don't see what we want.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Here's a question. So I don't know what my telomere length is. I don't. Do you have that, yeah. Ryan? Are you going to reveal that to I us do. right here? This if is, you want
1: me to. Yeah, I'm,
0: I'm, like I said, I'm very transparent. I have nothing to hide. So
1: yeah, go for it. You have an excellent telomere length. I do? Um, your telomere length. Yeah, it's, it's seven point three kilobase pairs, um, and, and so that would put you in around the ninetieth percentile of people your age. So, out of uh, every ten people in the room, you're probably uh, you know better than nine of them um, for the most part. And if we were just to predict your age based on your telomere length, we would actually predict your age to be thirty eight point nine four, um, and, and so wow. uh, that is a. a a really good telomere length, and and um, I, you know, again, I, I don't want to rain on, on such great results. Um, however, <laughs> uh, you know, telomere length is is generally maybe not the thing that we get most excited about in terms of prioritizing of these results. Okay. Uh it is, uh, you know, a lot of times when we talk about aging, we like to categorize aging into the nine hallmarks of aging, um, and epigenetic dysregulation is one of those. So is telomere length. Um, And so they're they're two separate parts of the aging process. Um, However, generally, I would say that most people tend to find these epigenetic ages much, much more predictive than telomere length. Um, And and so while we might, you know, definitely look at that as an individual process of aging, one that it looks like you're doing very well on, um, we might still prioritize those other epigenetic age clocks over this particular one. Um, and, and particularly placing maybe the most emphasis on that rate of aging algorithm uh, mm-hmm. because that is just so predictive of outcomes.
0: What What is my rate of aging then, Ryan? I don't know that one. Do you yeah, have so that? your rate
1: of aging, I do, absolutely. So your rate of aging is, is going to be 0.94 biological years per year. So for every year that you age chronologically, you age 0.94 years biologically. And this is good because the idea is that if, if for every year you're gaining 0.06 years, right? Um, in, in, in difference, and so keeping that below one is definitely the goal. Um, but but point nine six is or point nine four. I apologize. Is, is definitely a score uh, that, that that you should be proud of. Um, and again, as you age, it'll get harder to keep that below one, um, which is why we recommend doing this test as early as possible, and then doing the things we know to to sort of reverse or or decrease this this rate of aging metric and one of the biggest things really we don't know a lot about this metric and what changed it just yet but we do know one thing which is caloric restriction or fasting Um, you know even things particularly you mentioned you're taking spermidine Spermidine is one of the things we're really excited about because what it does is it increases autophagy, mm-hmm. which is a process that uh, definitely happens with fasting or caloric restriction as well. And so, um, and, and so, I think that uh, you know, doing some fasting, doing maybe a twenty-four hour fast, uh, you know, on regular intervals, or reducing your just total caloric intake—these are things that we've known for a long time via a lot of other studies. Uh, really are helpful at increasing lifespan in a variety of animal studies, including humans. Uh, But we also know that we can see changes in these epigenetic age marks, which is really good. And so oftentimes, if you really want to reduce that rate of aging, we might recommend just eating less.
0: You know what? That's funny that you say that because I do do all the things. I sleep like a baby, like you know, I would say 98 to 99% of the time I sleep like a baby. And maybe that has something to do with spermidine. It also may have something to do with bioidentical progesterone, right? So there's a few factors at play here for a 52-year-old woman to say that she sleeps like a baby. It's not that common, right? So sleep is a huge factor, I do believe. And maybe it has to do with all of that. But I can tell you, Ryan... I eat too much. <laughs> so I eat well, yeah. meaning I Me eat, well. <laughs> you know, I I am Eastern European. I'm Croatian. I love my food and I love to cook. And so I eat very good quality food, but I definitely eat a lot. And so that's really helpful information because... You know, like, that's one thing. Yes, I do the fasting now and again. And I actually believe in working out fasted. So I don't eat before I go to the gym. But that's really, really interesting to say that. Now, um, wow, like, I'm just floored with all this information that you're able to provide. But let's get into the immune age. Because... Yeah. I explained to you, I had COVID end of November, right? I don't know at all if this has anything to do with this, but yet my immune age is what thirty two years old. Thirty. Yeah, 30,
1: correct. You okay. had almost a, a twenty year age gap between yeah. your chronological and your 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 extrinsic age, what we also call that immune age, and and generally, uh, you know, I think. As I mentioned to you offline, we oftentimes see that that extrinsic age is generally lower than intrinsic, or so the immune age is generally lower than that that other biological age metric we, we reference. Uh, but, but for you to have even such a larger gap is, is definitely, uh, you know, a sign that your immune system is aging pretty well. And you know, as it relates to COVID, we actually just published a study with uh, Yale and Cornell on the epigenetic age changes associated with COVID, and found some very interesting things, um, which I'm happy to go into. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so we actually, uh, with this study, we're actually able to take longitudinal samples. So whenever we first started uh, in July of 2020, we were in the middle of the pandemic, right? And so um, one of, we, we started to get a lot of these samples in and then um, started to recruit with some of our physicians, patients who uh, had taken a baseline test, then had COVID and then did a follow-up test for them to look at how how their age would change from from exposure. And we did this not only with COVID, but we also did it with the mRNA-based vaccines as well, where we did the for-and-afters of Pfizer and Moderna. Yeah, Yeah. and so um, so, so we were able to find out some interesting things, particularly the age was probably the most interesting piece because um, we actually saw two different types of responses. For people who are over 50 years of age, we actually saw that epigenetic ages got worse. Um, and, and so that was obviously something we might expect, um, obviously cause COVID is not a, a very easy thing. Uh, it's not a easy process on your body, but actually for people under 50, we actually saw an anti-aging effect. Um, and so the thought process was that particularly, you know, again, as we age, our immune systems get worse. Um, it goes under a process called immunosenescence. And so the, the idea or the, maybe one of the hypotheses that we had from that study was that. People under 50 have a healthy immune response and then are able to mount an effective response against COVID, Um, whereas people who generally are over 50 might have some immune dysregulation, which prevents them from mounting this hormetic response, which can be beneficial. And so um, we did see a, a relatively good line in the sand there at 50 years of age, which was pretty interesting. Um, and, and so uh, it definitely looks like their response to aging would differ ab- ab- upon your ability to cope with any type of, of threat or response. And so that was interesting. But the mRNA-based vaccines were actually probably even more interesting um, because when we looked at those, we saw that generally anyone who did uh, uh, an mRNA-based vaccine like Pfizer or Moderna actually showed anti-aging effects, uh, at least small anti-aging effects. Uh, we're talking very, very, very sort of, sort of small but, but consistent. Um, and, and statistically significant results where yeah, generally, people who took the results had better epigenetic ages, which um, is, is definitely a little bit confusing for us. We're not really sure why, but, but we're now starting to do some follow-up studies with other types of vaccines as well, like the traditional influenza or flu vaccines, to see if maybe that immune stimulation is affecting some of these biological aging processes. And so, um, so for you, it definitely, as we talk about extrinsic, that is a phenomenal score. Um, you know, Most people do not see 20-year age gaps ever. Um, and so that is a, a very good score. But, um, you know, as we talk about the impact of COVID, the answer is we're really not sure. You're, you're really right there chronologically where it could have gone either way. Yeah. Um, but, but judging for how well your immune system is and even some of those other immune markers, like your CD4 to CD8 T cell ratio, it looks like your immune system is functioning pretty well and maybe would put you in that under 50 category with COVID.
0: Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I I, I find all of it interesting because... I always like to look for the why, but sometimes we can't find the why, right? Like that takes time and it takes more data, right? So yeah, interesting. Okay, so that main score that you get from the true age, 51.7, is that a... Is that taking all those other factors into play to give you this one big score, like the immune age, the rate of yeah. aging? How is that developed? Does it take all of those factors?
1: So I wish, unfortunately, it does not, uh, because you know these algorithms are only as good as the data they're trained off of. Um, if, if that makes any sense, you know, if we were to uh, you know create an algorithm with ten people uh, and then create another algorithm with the in the exact same way with Ten thousand. Uh, those algorithms are going to behave a lot differently, right? Um, due to the amount of data that they're fed and how precise they can be. And so, we we generally will handle each algorithm or each output as their own individual category. Okay. Um, we, if we so we don't group these just yet. And 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 definitely these these uh, I would say these composite scores, where you can start to break it down to certain areas, are definitely on their way. Um, uh, and so we'll. we'll Definitely, hopefully within the next year, be able to tell you not only your biological age, but maybe what organ systems are decreasing that biological age uh, the most in you. So we're going to maybe say, hey, we really want to focus on lung health, or we really want to focus on liver health, or, or you know, your, your, your pancreas and, and your insulin sensitivity. And so we're going to start breaking these things down into individual organ system scores, which will give you a little bit more information about maybe what is not optimal, and then also information on how to go about maybe fixing that. Um, and so, so this is absolutely at its infancy, but we're going to start to break it down that way. Even things like brain age, how do we, you know, improve cognitive function, um, some of those other things, but it all requires data, which can be a slow process. Um, uh, and, and, but, uh, these, these things are definitely within our grasp.
0: That is absolute. Cause as a practitioner right away, my mind is going on, you know, peptides. Okay. Well, you know that your lung age is uh, not the greatest so you need to go on blood vessel like i'm right away thinking how can you improve this because i'm taking peptide bioregulators just as a almost like a sequence just to improve all my organ systems right and i'm swapping in and out because i don't i don't have a thyroid at All it, it's been taken out, so I don't have a thyroid, so there's no sense in taking a bioregulator for thyroid. But for all the other organs where I don't really have specific issues, so if a, a test such as this can say, okay, well, you know, you're a little bit weaker in this area, that is just really targeted information. I love it, Ryan.
1: Okay. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that this is another area that I just want to elaborate on this method of epigenetic methylation, because, um, you know, whenever we talk about health and disease, a lot of times people come to the physician with the disease, and they need to be diagnosed. And, and that is something that we're trying to avoid. We want to do what we call preclinical detection, right, where we detect this before it manifests into health consequences. And, and epigenetics is so precise that it is really well built for that preclinical detection see where problems are coming before they actually occur. And, and that is that is a, a huge importance, as I mentioned, even to sort of the reason I'm so passionate about this is because preventative medicine is a much easier type of medicine than trying to fix or reverse processes. And so if we can start to identify these things early, I, and I think that this platform of testing is built for that. I, I mentioned some of this cancer testing. Um, it, it, uh, there do now tests on the market uh, called called Gallery um, from Grail, which is a, uh, a test which can detect up to 50 types of cancers just from a simple blood test. Um, yes. it, it doesn't just tell you where what type of cancer you have. It tells you where it's at and it might possibly give you some stage information as well, which is great, right, because we all know that cancer, if you catch it too late, can be really, really hard to fix, but you can catch it early, then you can do some, have a lot more treatment strategies. And it's the same, not just for cancer, but for every disease. If you catch it early, then you can see some benefits. And and we would think the same for aging, as aging is one of those prerequisites for the development of a lot of these different diseases. Uh, you know, even, even things like breast cancer, the biggest risk factor for breast cancer is obviously sex. Are you male or female? The second is age. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and so, uh, you know, again, these are the things that we can actually detect and then make a change with to prevent those diseases from happening.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I'm a big believer in symptomatology, that your body is always speaking to you. But the biggest issue with that is that many people are not as in touch with their body You know, you've got some people who are very in tune with their body and the symptoms, whereas others don't really get it. So this is why tests such as yours will give you more definitive areas where you need to look at, where you need to focus at for your health before you get sick. And I always say that, like I've worked with clients who are already sick, who already have autoimmune conditions, but it's much better if you look at the inflammation before. It develops into a disease.
1: I was just, yeah, I couldn't say it any better than you. I think that again, uh, when we talk about preventive medicine, it's the better type of medicine. Pay attention, uh, and it will yield a lot of benefits uh, in the future. So I think that uh, it's hard to add on what you said. But I think that this, particularly this age diagnostic, is one that will affect all of your risk, and therefore should be one of those things we really focus on.
0: Absolutely, this. Uh, you know, now I'll say this has been a really engaging and fascinating conversation. It's right up my own personal alley where I love to hear about what more can I do to optimize my wellness. I actually just posted about this. I want to be that 80-year-old grandmother someday dancing on the dance floor. You know, I want to age well until it's my time to leave this earth. But I don't want to be sick for 20 years beforehand you know, and I'm going to do everything I can to try and prevent that. I know there's no guarantees in life, but please tell me, how can we find you? um, Anything else that you'd like to add, Ryan?
1: No, I think that I think we've we've gone through a lot. I will just say for for uh, you know this is going to be an exciting space with developments all the time. So hopefully, uh, you know, we'll be back uh, whenever we have maybe more of those other reports to to update all the listeners. But if you have any way uh, or you any other questions, feel free to reach out to us at truediagnostic.com. That's trudagnostic.com. We're happy to answer any questions. You can find us on social. Um, and if you'd like to get the test done, I think that uh, we'll have maybe some discounts through uh, through Sandy available as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it'll be in the show notes for sure, but we're looking at Sandy K 50 to offer everyone $50 off a test kit of your own. And I want to thank you so much, Ryan, for coming today. It's been really a pleasure talking to you.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for having me, Sandy.
0: Thank you, Ryan.